What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Stocks are gaining for the second day in a row, with the Dow rallying almost 800 points. As Putin signals, he may be ready to hold high-level talks with Ukraine. But can the rebound last even if the geopolitics gets worse? We will ask. Plus, oil dropping today, but Goldman's Jeff Curry says uncertainty around Russian sanctions is putting us on track for a potential supply shock, and prices could still go to 125. He joins us live. And could the Ukraine crisis derail the Fed's tightening plan? We speak to the economist behind the Taylor rule that's sometimes used to set rates, John Taylor himself. And he says, no, the Fed needs to hike half a point next month regardless. So let's start with today's markets and Dom Chu is over there with the latest. Uh, So many factors in this narrative over the course of this past week. And of course, the Ukraine-Russia crisis is at the center of a lot of it alongside those interest rates, as you were saying. But as we take a look at the markets overall, the reason why it's important is because we are now up roughly almost 800 some points. We've pulled back just off the session highs right now. That's up two and a third percent for the Dow Industrials, 33,989. Best day on pace for the Dow for 2022. We'll see if it stays that way. The S&P 4370, that's 81 handles, 31 points to the upside, almost 2% gains there. And the NASDAQ is lagging, so to speak, up only 1%, up 135 points, 13,609. If you take a look in context at the pullback that we've seen and the bounces that we've seen over the last couple of days or so, we now stand with the orange line, the S&P 500, down about 9% from the record highs that we've seen. The Dow Industrials are down about 8%. That's the white line. And the Nasdaq Composite is still down roughly 16% from those record highs that we've seen. So again, again, the context is important here about just what the pullback has been and the bounce that we are seeing. Also take a look at some of the bigger picture items we're focusing on right now, specifically with regard to interest rates. Kelly mentioned the 10-year Treasury note yield. We are back up to 2%. Maybe that signal's normal. Remember, we saw a big bid to Treasuries. Interest rates go down for the 10-year side of things. The two-year note yield, 1.62%. But check an eye, keep an eye on this. The yield curve, the spread between long-term rates and short-term rates continues to compress, not necessarily what's been viewed as a bullish sign for the market or economy in previous times it's happened in the past. So watch that. And then three key parts of the market that have seen big bounces and volatility over the course of the past week. We're talking financial technology stocks, semiconductor stocks, and software. Take a look over the last couple of days and the lows of the week here and just how far we've bounced. Watch for those. They've been beleaguered as of late. And then some of the stocks that we care about the most because they're the biggest weightings out there. Check out Apple for the week, Microsoft for the week, and Alphabet for the week. By curiously, Apple is the only one of the big three that is negative on the one-week session. So keep an eye on those mega caps. A lot of traders are still focusing on those, Kel. Back over to you. And a big rebound we've seen over the past session or two. Dom Banks. The Kremlin reporting that Putin may be ready to send a delegation for negotiations, even as Russian troops are closing in on Ukraine's capital of Kyiv. Kayla Tausche is in Washington with all the latest for us. Kayla? 
Well, Kelly, the Russian state media are reporting that President Putin spoke with Chinese President Xi Jinping, who is among those reportedly suggesting Russia and Ukraine return to the negotiating table. But that apparent desire is met with a different picture on the ground. Ukrainian troops and National Guard defending the capital city as Russian troops close in. And we now know 137 Ukrainians have died. Across the country, Russian tanks and trucks are rolling through. Earlier this week, the State Department warned that Russia is performing diplomatic kabuki theater with no real intention to broker peace. Amid all the uncertainty, the Biden administration is hoping to provide some clarity, at least to energy markets. The State Department's senior advisor for energy security, Amos Hochstein, spoke first to CNBC and said Europe now has enough natural gas to last through winter, that IEA members are meeting today to discuss how to increase global oil supply and that prices should fall once the market realizes the U.S. will not be sanctioning Russian energy outright. I fully expect that those transactions will continue to be permitted. Having said that, there's going to have to be some rejiggering of the payment systems and the transactions as several of these uh, of the leading Russian banks that process uh, the process energy payments are going to be blocked by the United States and are going to have sanctions from, from Europe. Today, Ukraine's foreign minister has asked the U.S. again to rally Europe behind blocking Russia from the SWIFT secure payment system and discussed sending more military equipment to Ukraine, too. Kelly? Although, Kayla, as you pointed out, that would hurt the European economy. So it, what I mean, are you hearing anything about what accounted for this possibility that Putin is open to the idea of having talks with Ukraine? I mean, what would have what would have prompted that? And we see reports about how from various military experts, oh, well, maybe the invasion didn't go as well as they hoped. Well, at the same time, they're still bearing down on Kyiv. So I'm curious what you're hearing. Well, Kelly, it's impossible to know uh, what has led to uh, this reported change of heart. But I would just say that the administration has warned for days and weeks uh, of, of taking anything that comes out of Russian state media or from the Kremlin without a massive grain of salt. As I mentioned, they have been warning of diplomatic kabuki theater. They've been warning uh, of disinformation, suggesting that there have been uh, uh, large swaths of Ukrainian military that have surrendered to Russian forces. There were worried about morale uh, on the ground in Ukraine. The West is worried about morale. And so they're warning that uh, there is a lot of disinformation about what Russia uh, wants and is intending and what the actual state of affairs is. Uh, so we'll, we'll just have to wait and see until we get some some firmer information uh, out of out of other sources that are not the Kremlin or Russian state media. Kelly. Great point. Kayla, thank you so much, as always, our Kayla Tausch in Washington. This softening tone out of Russia, if that's what it is, well, look at stocks. It appears to be helping them rebound today. Dow's up 718. Investors are buying in every sector. Less than 20 S&P components are in the red right now. With me is Mark Avalone. He's president at Potomac Wealth Advisors. Mark, it's been a lot to digest this week. Uh, absolutely. I'm absolutely. Just, and Go ahead. Oh, and we think that's going to continue. This The news cycle is going to be very rapid Investors need to be fluid. I, I like the two-day move here, or at least a 24-hour move up in stocks, but I don't think it's going to be a one-way. While we're bullish on stocks, I expect a lot more volatility. We have Fed speak next week. That could be a big driver. And this uh, overture to have talks in Ukraine may or may not be as genuine as we hope. And I should point out, this may or may not be about that development. If you go back to yesterday, we started seeing strategists like Michael Darda come out and say it's time to buy the dip. We saw technical buying in the NASDAQ 100s as that relative strength declined. We saw technical buying in the NASDAQ as it hit a 20 percent pullback. So 
Do you think that some of the technicals have helped turn things around here? Yes, it was a slightly overbought position. Look at forward multiples. They're, they're coming in close to historical averages. And remember, while the Fed's talking tightening, it's still in a liquidity mode, and there's still a ton of liquidity out there. Investors are cash rich. Money has nowhere to go. People were looking, remember a few weeks ago, a few months ago, people wanted to buy on dips. So this is an opportunity for a lot of people who had money on the sidelines. So when we get a technical move, an opportunity, you're going to see sharp moves up, but the risk is you're going to see sharp moves down. Algorithms can kick in, momentum trading. So this is going to be a choppy market. But for now, it looks like it's a decent place for long-term investors to park some money. Uh, Brian Reynolds is another strategist who thinks we're sort of in the bottoming process right now. I know that you like a lot of the big insurers. You seem to be looking for places that, you know, as we would say, are often kind of the safety plays here. Yeah, we want to blend value and growth, and that's because we take a long-term perspective. On the value side, insurance companies provide dividends, reliable cash flows because of their the way they're structured and their underwriting. They've also internally have really cleaned up a lot of their risks. They're no longer in some unprofitable lines where the, they've shed or reduced the long-term care exposure. And these lifetime income annuity contracts that the major insurers offer are, are almost to the wayside. They're very difficult to find. Most insurers have exited. And they've replaced them with lower risk, higher profit, these buffered annuity contracts. And these risk managers, these insurers, this is the game they play in and they can profit in. Yeah. And as asset values increase on the equity side, and if interest rates settle out at higher levels, we think they get a, uh, an income statement boost from their balance sheet. I think these two factors of being well run in better lines of business while their balance sheet portfolios firm up, going to make them very attractive investments going forward. Especially like Lincoln, MetLife, Prudential. And I should say on the growth and cash flow piece of this, you also like a lot of mega cap tech. So let's end, if I can, talk to me about DocuSign. If people are in the mood to take a little bit more risk right now, uh, tell me why that one pops up for you. Well, it pops up because we just went through a massive repapering project, and it's just an absolutely amazing product, and it, is, it creates such efficiencies. I think they, they frankly could have charged a lot more for the service because of the, the value they bring consumers, not just in our, in our situation, which was a large project, but on an ongoing basis. DocuSign is going to become a word that we use in our, our daily language and business. I don't think it was a stay-at-home play that's going to fade like to see them get their operating expenses down a little bit. But this is not a one-and-done pandemic play. This is the way business is going to be conducted in the future. All right, Mark, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Good to be here. Mark Avalone. The Russia-Ukraine conflict also driving up commodity prices this week. Everything from oil to aluminum and wheat. But oil, not gas, corn and wheat, they're actually giving back some of those gains today. My next guest still predicts, uh, predicts prices to remain elevated, saying crude could still spike to around $125 a barrel. Joining me now is Jeff Curry. He is the global head of commodities research at Goldman Sachs. Jeff, welcome to you. And I think the most important point to make here is that you don't think this, these high prices are because of this conflict. You think they're fundamentally driven by supply and demand, right? 
Oh, absolutely. We look at this trend in oil prices and commodity prices. It dates back to September of 2020. It's been a, just a pretty much a straight line up since then as inventories draw down, get to critically low levels, volatility spikes. We're now in a scarcity premium across all these markets. It makes them really exposed to any kind of disruption. And that's what we have going on in Russia, Ukraine. While our base case is you're not getting a disruption because it's just no one's interest, and the sanctions announced yesterday are not going to disrupt energy. But I think the key point here is that let's call them shadow sanctions are leading to disruptions in Russian supply. Um, crude oil, Russian crude, Ural's grade is trading at a $12 discount to Brent right now because people do not want to take this oil due to credit risk, legal risk, sanction risk operational risk. They don't want to send boats up into the Black Sea. Even the Chinese are not taking um, Russian material, whether if it's crude, metals, grains, whatever it might be. So yeah, the market's off today. Um, but the reality is the physical market, which is already tight, is uh, getting even tighter. And one last point I want to say, while there's a big range of potential near-term price outcomes, the structural bullish story is just reinforced by these events because the capital sank, the, ca the sanctions on capital flows, particularly the banks in Russia, will make it difficult to invest further, reinforcing this underinvestment thesis. At just one point you made there. So even China is not taking delivery of Russian commodities? Yep. Um, as of this morning, the banks were um, not you know, providing commodity trade finance to be able to load um, you know, Russian oil, even on Chinese ships. I think you know, there's not only the issue about financing, um, there's also the issue, do you really want to send a ship up into the Black Sea right now? It's hard to find crews to go do that. So let me ask you about demand. What you're speaking to especially is the fact that demand has outstripped supply. Like you're warned if, if Russia can't invest right now in increasing supply, then, you know, that makes it worse. But what about those, including the Fed, who are going to be looking at the global demand response here and, and wondering if we see a slowdown? Well, I, I like to point out a couple of things that when we see a Fed pivot in rate hikes, 12 months after a rate hiking cycle begins, crude is always higher, on average, 30% higher. So if we were trading, let's say, 95 at the beginning of this rate hiking cycle, means we're trading 125 or 130 on average throughout historical rate hiking cycles. But I want to emphasize, it takes a long time to actually slow commodity demand. So it's not something you start hiking rates and pivot tomorrow. Yeah, it may impact the equity market. But remember, these are physical markets. It takes time to slow the demand and start to turn that ship around. I'm sure you're familiar with your colleague Ed Morse's arguments over at City, where he thinks that, and maybe we could have this spike first, but that ultimately we'll see crude settle in towards the 60s per barrel at the end of this year because we will see a supply response come online. Why don't you think that that could, uh, and you know, we know plenty of other people have said we could have 10 to $20 of geopolitical premium and other, you know, in the crude price right now. Why aren't we possibly heading into a period where the crude price could drop precipitously? It's not about the supply and demand of the barrels of oil. It's about the supply and demand of the capital used to produce those barrels of oil. In the restrictions around investment right now, look at where the share price of these companies are trading, their free cash flow yields, they're not moving. You're not attracting capital to the sector. Even the, the amount of capital in oil right now, they sell into the strength. They don't buy into the strength. So whether if it's looking at share prices, bonds, commodities themselves, the amount of capital in this space 
is at still extraordinarily low levels, particularly on a historical basis. So my response to that is show me the capital and I'll show you the oil. But at this point right now, we don't have the capital. Fascinating. And if you're right, high gasoline prices are going to be a headache for some time. Jeff, thanks for your time today. Great. Jeff Thank Curry you for having me. with Goldman Sachs. Coming up, we'll speak with former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, James Tavrides, about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and whether NATO will press ahead in looking to add members like Finland and Sweden after Russia's warning today. And as we head to break, here's a quick check on the markets. Dow's up 719, just under 100 points or so off the highs. NASDAQ actually trailing, but still up 99. We're back in a moment. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everyone. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues and Russian troops move within miles of Kyiv, we're getting reports that Putin may be willing to hold high-level talks with Ukraine. For more on what those talks could look like, I'm joined by retired Admiral James Stavridis. He's former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO and NBC and MSNBC analyst. And it's great to have you back, sir. Kayla warned us a few moments ago about Russian disinformation. It's hard to trust these reports coming out of the Kremlin these days. What would you make of it? Well, we've seen nothing but a web of lies coming out of Moscow for months about this, including the big lie, which was, oh, we're not going to invade. We have no intention of invading. We will never occupy. Look where that has gotten us. So I think you take everything you hear from Vladimir Putin and his team, so to speak, with not a grain of salt, but an ocean of salt. Having said that, I think there are three reasons Putin might be starting to think hmm, negotiation might not be a terrible thing. One is the Ukrainians are fighting back, and they're fighting fairly well. Uh, Ultimately, they may probably be defeated, but they are a tough bunch. They served under my command in in Afghanistan. We had Ukrainian soldiers there on the ground. They're good fighters. Number two, uh, Putin is seeing the effect of these sanctions. And, you know, frankly, we haven't hit him with uh, level 10 sanctions. He's being hit right now with maybe level seven. He knows what level 10 could look like. I think that's concerning. And number three, he is increasingly uh, concerned about the buildup of NATO forces on his border, which is exactly what he doesn't want to happen. So it's logical to me that they would be at least taking a pause and saying, let's have a talk. And yet at the same time, Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman today reportedly uh, suggested that if Sweden and Finland were to think about joining NATO, it would have, quote, serious military political repercussions. So uh, if Russia's already on the one hand calculating uh, whether this move into Ukraine was a good idea, why would they at the same time be issuing a warning like that to Sweden and Finland? Uh, They're trying to discourage Sweden and Finland from joining the alliance. And let me tell you something. 
The Swedes and the Finns have strong, capable, professional militaries. They, too, deployed to Afghanistan, again under my command. I saw them there in the Balkans on operations in Libya. They are A-team militaries. Typically, both Sweden and Finland have maintained positions of neutrality. But gosh, if I woke up in Europe on Monday watching missiles rain down on Kyiv, I would certainly be thinking, hmm, I'd like to get one of those NATO membership cards. So I think uh, you're going to hear more sword rattling from Putin. Believe me, he's not going to invade Finland or Sweden. He knows better than to try that. My guess is there'll be real sentiment in those two countries to join the alliance. Another unintended negative consequence for Vladimir Putin. So how do you think NATO stands as as of this week? Uh, does the alliance look stronger than ever? In my mind, it does. And if your worst nightmare, if you're Vladimir Putin, is a strong, unified NATO pushing forces to your border, encouraging top flight military nations like Finland and Sweden to join. If that's your nightmare, you're in the middle of nightmare on Elm Street. And I don't think it's going to get better for Putin. And I think that realization is starting to sink in for him. The flip side of the coin is those who say the U.S. looks weaker than ever because look at what's happened in Afghanistan. And now look at what we've tacitly allowed in Ukraine with the missiles that you alluded to raining down. I think that's a fair argument. And I think it was also part of Vladimir Putin's calculus. What I think he underestimated was the degree to which this administration was able to pull the NATO allies together. Strong example would be Germany's decision to stop the process of opening Nord Stream 2, for example. I think very shortly you're going to see the EU announce personal sanctions on Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov. Um, the alliance, I think, to my eye, is holding together well, much better than Putin perhaps thought it would. Absolutely. Admiral, thanks again for your time. We appreciate it. We'll let you go. Admiral James Stavridis, formerly commander of NATO. Still ahead, could accelerated peace talks put a half point rate hike back on the table when the Fed meets in two and a half weeks? We'll tell you what the central bank officials are now saying about the possibility. Plus, Deer is on pace for its second straight week of losses for the first time since September. What is spooking investors? We'll look at one under the radar supply constraint that could have a significant impact on the industrial giant. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. John Ford sits down with NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong and ServiceNow CEO Bill McDermott on the future of AI, live from ServiceNow's Knowledge 2024 conference in Vegas. Closing bell overtime, today for Eastern, CNBC. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're just off session highs right now of 775 on the Dow. This rally has been gaining steam as we move throughout the session. It's a 2.4% gain, almost 2% for the S&P, about 1% for the NASDAQ. Let's take a check on sectors for the week. And healthcare and real estate are actually your leaders with about 2.62% gain since Monday. On the flip side, consumer discretionary is the biggest laggard. It's down about 3% this week, as you can see there. Here are some of the individual movers as well that we're watching this hour. The semiconductors are set to post a positive week. AMD and Intel among the leaders up about 5% since Tuesday. AMD announcing an $8 billion stock buyback program. There you can see it's 5.3% gain. Cybersecurity names also seeing some gains this week on concerns about how that electronic cyber warfare could uh, break out further from here. The Bug ETF and Palo Alto Networks are both on pace for their best week since August. Palo Alto up 16%. The other hand, China Tech not doing so great. The KWeb ETF is set to close 5% lower for the week, with both Alibaba and Tencent losing about 10%. Alibaba just had its slowest revenue growth since going public, Frank. <laughs> and now to Frank Holland with our CNBC News Update. Kelly, always good to see you. Uh, here's what's happening at this hour. We are here. That's the message from Ukrainian President Zelensky. He shot a short video showing him and a top government official in Kyiv, even as Russian airstrikes pound the capital for a second day. Zelensky says they are staying to protect the independence of their country. The White House says President Biden finished a a 40-minute phone call with Zelensky just about an hour ago. Multiple organizations are canceling big events in Russia. The European Champions League soccer finals being moved from St. Petersburg to Paris. Formula One racing has canceled the Russian Grand Prix. And the Eurovision Song Contest, one of the largest talent contests in the world, says there will be no Russian participants this year. NATO leaders have agreed to send parts of the organization's rapid response force to Eastern Europe. They're being sent to help protect allies following Russia's Ukraine uh, invasion of Ukraine. That's in addition to recent troop movements, including these British tanks arriving in Estonia to strengthen forces there. On the news tonight, the CDC is expected to ease mask requirements today. What that will mean for mask rules of states and companies, that's tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern. That's the very latest. Kelly, That's back a over big to you. Story. Frank, thank you very much. Up next, we're live from Beijing with China's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and why its support for Russia may be limited. And as we head to break, take a look at the home building stocks, all firmly in the green, with Taylor Morrison and DR Horton leading the way today. Back in a moment. Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping holding a phone call today, during which Putin allegedly said he's willing to hold high-level talks with Ukraine. Our Yunus Yun is live in Beijing with the latest from China. Yunus? Thanks, Kelly. Well, the Chinese foreign ministry confirmed that President Putin told President Xi on a phone call that uh, he is willing to hold negotiations with Ukraine. Uh, The ministry added that President Xi told Putin that he backed the Russian leader resolving this issue through negotiations and that he repeated China's long-held stance that the um, there's it's very important for one country to respect another country's sovereignty. Now, so far, uh, China has been showing a lot of support for Russia, um, essentially refraining from, um, from calling uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine an invasion. At the same time, uh, recently, uh, China has been increasingly showing a certain level of discomfort with Russia's move because as uh, President Xi has suggested, uh, this uh, move uh, really seems to breach a core tenant of uh, China's foreign policy, and that is non-interference in other states' sovereignty. Kelly? And we wonder, Eunice, how this discomfort China's feeling about Russia's move, how that will impact it, uh, 
its take on Western sanctions. And we just heard from Goldman's Jeff Curry, China's not even buying a lot of uh, physical commodities from Russia at the moment. Yeah, and it's interesting because just there are some reports tonight that uh, some of the Chinese state banks have uh, stopped issuing uh, U.S. dollar-denominated letters of credit for uh, uh, purchases of Russian commodities. And so that really indicates some of the limits that China will go for assistance. Uh, up till now, um, the signaling from China has been that um, that it's willing to help Russia kind of navigate through some of these Western sanctions with announcements about uh, new energy uh, deals uh, that were signed between President Putin and President Xi during the Winter Olympics. And then uh, yesterday, an announcement of an expansion of the import of Russian wheat. Uh, however, um, the analysts that I speak to say that uh, even though China could do more to make things a little bit easier on Russia, for example, on the currency, uh, making it a bit more convertible uh, at a speedier pace in order to allow for more non-U.S. dollar-denominated uh, trade, um, that China, at the end of the day, is going to do what's best for China. So it won't necessarily be making a whole lot of moves, uh, say, for example, on the currency uh, with uh, so many um, domestic issues that uh, the Chinese are worried about. Fair enough. Eunice, thanks. It's good to see you. We appreciate our Eunice Yoon. My next guest says China's likely feeling conflicted on what's playing out in Ukraine. For more, let's welcome in Nicholas Lardy, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And Nick, how should we expect China's response to evolve over the next couple of days? Well, thank you for having me, Kelly. I think, um, I think first it should be noted, I think China was quite surprised that Putin actually ordered, ordered an invasion. Uh, I think they were very surprised. Um, and I think their support for Putin to date has been very lukewarm. There have been several calls initiated uh, by the Russians, including most recently by Putin, trying to get the Chinese more on side. But I don't think they're getting anywhere. China is not uh, going to recognize the two breakaway provinces that uh, Putin has now said are sovereign states. And I think China will be very, very reluctant to try to help Russia mover around the sanctions that are being imposed by the West. And Why? in particular, I think uh, China's financial institutions are very, very deeply integrated into the global economy. China is this, one of the largest trading economies in the world. It has massive uh, imports and exports, some very substantial flows of foreign direct investment, multiple times uh, those of Russia. And uh, their view would clearly be that if they help the Russians get around the sanctions, that the U.S. might sanction Chinese financial institutions. Hmm. That would be very costly for China, much more costly than it's going to be for Russia. At the same time, are we to understand that China basically prizes its involvement in the Western international economy over its, uh, over its desire to undermine said economy? I think so. I think, uh, you know, their self-interest is uh, to maintain their ties with the global economy, uh, both in terms of trade and investment flows. And they're not going to go out of their way to help uh, Putin uh, maneuver around uh, the financial sanctions. There will still be some trade, I suppose, but uh, China's trade with Russia is a percentage of China's total trade. Uh, Russia's a rounding error as fine as as far as China is concerned. So is, are you saying that we should almost look to China as an ally here in the international response? 
Well, I don't think they're going to be an ally. I don't think they're going to speak up strongly in support of the Western sanctions. Uh, I don't think they'll join in. Or certainly, uh, what they will do is not not try to undermine them. Uh, so it's more what they don't do rather than what they do. And who does that leave? If if the narrative going into this was that Russia and China were leaning on each other to increase their sphere of influence at the expense of the existing international order, then what you're saying would suggest that's not taking place. Did Russia miscalculate? Well, you know, I think in the long run, you know, China would like, uh, you know, to have a larger role in the global order. Uh, Putin, Putin certainly has the same objective. So there seemed to be the basis for an alliance. But when you get down to the concrete situation of an invasion of a sovereign state by Russia, this is fundamentally against China's most important foreign policy principle, which is, uh, you know, state sovereignty. And um, I think that is going to dominate. I think the idea that they were going to have an alliance with Russia uh, was a little bit far-fetched. And finally, Nick, there, the widely, you know, the widespread notion that China might use the disarray as an opportunity to advance on Taiwan or might follow Russia's lead by saying, well, you know, then if this is what we're doing now, then it's time for us to make our, our long-awaited move. What do you think about those prospects? I think that's uh, very unfounded uh, speculation. You know, you could make the counter-argument that the fear might be on China's part that the, that the U.S. would declare that Taiwan was a sovereign con country and uh, increase its defense commitment uh, to Taiwan, and that's something the Chinese want to avoid at all costs. Well, I think the, the, the chance of a Chinese move on Taiwan now is approximately zero. Wow. Nick Lardy, great to have you on today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Joining me from the Peterson Institute. Still ahead, recession or no recession? A bunch of inflation and consumer-focused data out this week. What it tells us about the health of the economy next. But first, prices dropping today. But staples like wheat and soybeans still around multi-year highs on supply chain fears because of the Ukraine invasion. What it means for ag equipment names next. And check out the Dow hitting new session highs just moments ago up 818, extending yesterday's huge turnaround about 50 points off that level right now. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Wheat's falling today by about 8%, but supply concerns and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have pushed prices to, to around a 14-year high this week. My next guest says ag equipment stocks should be on the defense as the global market reacts. Joining me now is Stephen Volkman. He's senior machinery analyst at Jefferies. Stephen, it's great to see you. And where does this leave a company like Deere? Yes, th uh, thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, obviously both Russia and Ukraine are key producers of wheat uh, and some, to some extent, corn as well. Uh, you know, this is going to make the global markets tighter and obviously result in higher prices. And, you know, higher prices attract investment. Uh, the only way to sort of cure higher prices is more production, and that's going to require more equipment. Yeah, so this would seem to be bullish. I mean, the stock is up, uh, at least it's up year to date, which is more than we can say for most. Uh, how do you think it's price? What's your price expectation or I should say price target on the stock? Yeah, I mean, we think this is a great long-term story. I mean, obviously, this Ukraine situation is one that is, you know, kind of near-term. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, there's a lot of uh, big uh, trends at, at, at 
steers back here, including technology. You know, we think the tightness in global markets uh, for um, uh, crops are going to be sort of something that's with us for quite a while due to climate change uh, and so forth. We have a $450 price target on this, but this is a long-term story that's just actually kind of helped by, uh, by this Ukraine situation, but has a lot more going for it than that. Yeah, I mean, Deer's only at 344 today, so that's some pretty nice upside. It's not the only name you like either, Caterpillar, Cummins. Tell me about those. Yeah, you can't, we actually have a hold on, but I can see a situation where, you know, tightness in oil and gas markets, which, uh, you know, you guys have reported on a ton, uh, you know, could drive some additional investment there. That would clearly benefit Caterpillar. Uh, later cycle, they should get some benefit from the U.S. Uh, infrastructure uh, bill as well, although Deer will too. That's still about 25% of their business. Uh, important to remember that. Um, but that's one that could benefit. Uh, and, and we think Cummins is actually interesting here. We do have a buyer rating on that one. Um, you know, if we have issues with, uh, you know, the availability of various battery type commodities, that could slow the adoption uh, of batteryification in a lot of these big engine markets. And, and Cummins has some great renewable fuel, sort of fuel agnostic uh, opportunities to, to sort of do decarbonization without batteries. That is a fascinating point with a lot of further uh, implications to think through if you're right about batteries. I guess let me just ask finally, are, are, you, are you saying that these are more or less boom times for the U.S. farming industry right now? Yeah, they really are. I mean, the only issue that farmers have is that their input costs are also up a lot. And frankly, True. this Ukraine situation doesn't help that. Um, but the fact is, with higher crop prices, you get higher farm incomes, and they traditionally love to reinvest in the core business. So yeah, it, it is kind of boom time. That's a big turnaround from a couple years ago, and a welcome one. Stephen, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Stephen Volkman from Jefferies. Coming up, the Ukraine invasion certainly complicating things for the Fed. They've got market volatility, the threat of higher food and energy prices. We'll talk to John Taylor, the economist behind the Taylor rule, about why he says the Fed is off track and needs to get moving. Welcome back, everybody. Market keeps climbing this afternoon. We're up about 850 points, fresh session highs, as they're called. Two and a half percent gains for the Dow, the best day for the Dow since November of 2020. So about 18 months ago, the S&P up more than two percent. The Nasdaq, which was strong yesterday, up another one and a quarter percent. We have a news alert on Facebook. Let's get to Julia Borson with the latest. It's a Russia story, Julia. That's right. Meta Platforms' Nick Clegg responding to Russian authorities ordering Facebook to stop what they call independent fact-checking and labeling of content posted on Facebook by four Russia state-owned media organizations. Clegg saying in a tweet just posted, quote, we refused. As a result, they've announced they will be restricting the use of our services, saying, quote, ordinary Russians are using Meta's apps to express themselves and organize for action. We want them to continue to make their voices heard, share what's happening and organize through Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger. Now, I do have to know that it's unclear what restricting means, whether there will be some access to some of these apps, but it's certainly interesting to watch this. Meta tra shares trading flat, and this, of course, comes, Kelly, as Meta works to tamp down on misinformation and disinformation on its platforms. Indeed. Julia, thank you very much, Julia Borston. 
Meantime, the U.S. consumer are holding up reasonably well in January. While income was flattish in the wake of the child tax credit, real personal spending came in stronger than expected, meaning it beat inflation by one and a half percent. Separately, durable goods orders nearly doubled estimates, another sign of strength. So how well is the U.S. economy doing right now and how quickly does the Fed need to tighten? Joining me now is John Taylor, professor of economics at Stanford and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's best known for the Taylor Rule, a mathematical formula for setting interest rates. Welcome. It's good to see you. Good to be here. Thank you, Kelly. And I, th- I wanted to start by asking about the strength of the economy, because normally we get strong, durable goods, all the rest of it go great off to the races. But inflation makes that picture a little more murky this time. It does. It, the economy is recovering. That's good. But inflation is, is quite high, especially where the Fed is. And so I think there needs to be some adjustments. So we can't have a roaring inflation again. We, we in some ways have the roaring uh, 20s that people hoped for a year or two ago. The problem is we just have roaring inflation with it. How roaring would you describe it? I mean, is it the end of the world if inflation still 3% next year? How aggressive does the Fed need to be here? It's not the end of the world, but I think the Fed needs to begin to make the adjustments. They've begun to talk about it in the last few months. People are, are guessing how many great moves they'll move this year. But they should move. Uh, you, you mentioned the Taylor Rule. Taylor Rule is indicating they should make adjustments, and uh, a lot of people are looking at that and, and making guesses about how much the Fed will move. I think the concerns that the Fed has had that the economy will slow, but I think at this point the economy will do better with a more reasonable interest rate. More reasonable, meaning higher. Um, you think, if I'm correct, that they should do half a point next month. Is that right? No matter what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? I think that would be that would be the best at this point, because they are behind even with what's happening in Ukraine. I think the Ukraine issues are obviously to, uh, need to be watched carefully. But in the meantime, they are behind by almost any calculation. And so adjustments uh continuing uh, throughout this year, starting perhaps with 50 basis points, the next move. But I think the main thing is a gradual announced plan as much as possible, and that will make the economy adjust better, actually. It'd be better to have a a more reasonable, I'd say, interest rate, not nearly zero, but eventually two or 3%. How far behind are they? Well, I think they're quite behind. I mean, I think by the end of this year, 3% would be a reasonable thing. And you know, the normal rate is about four. So I don't know if they're going to get to that rate. They have to have inflation to come down. I think you can point to the rise of inflation due to the policy. You know, people are saying other things, but policy has been very easy, if you like. And I think that's the reason inflation has picked up. So a gradual return to normal will reduce inflation, hopefully without any cost to the economy, it'll be a benefit to the economy. Yeah, I was going to ask you what the driver here is. Is it Five trillion uh, and the Fed balance sheet expansion is it? Would you throw in the five trillion on the fiscal side we spent to fight the pandemic? And do you think that they need to shrink the balance sheet as quickly as they raise rates? Well, they're they're stopping the increase in the balance sheet, but I think eventually they'll need to raise the uh, limit, be, be, reduce the balance sheet as they increase the interest rate. But I think at this point, the most important thing is to get on with the interest rate rise. I think the markets are beginning to expect that more and more. The balance sheet should be part of that um, because it's basically been part of the expansion. But I think the main thing is the interest rate. And again, just to kind of explain why you think that when when we talk about this issue, there are many who say, well, wait a minute, we already are dealing with high prices and low consumer sentiment. And and wouldn't the Fed aggressively raising interest rates just make the U.S. consumer feel a lot worse? What would your response to that be? 
No, I think it would make it feel better. It's, again, it's, what's unusual now is given the inflation rate, given the state of the economy, the interest rate is near zero. So it is, it, it's a very unusual time. We, we, we haven't had this situation before. So that's what's unusual. A, a more normal situation is where the rate would be higher. And I think moving in that direction is, is very important for a continuing this strong economy. We, we want the economy to get stronger, not weaker. And this will be the way to do it. Well said. John Taylor, thanks for your time today. It's good to see you. Joining me from the Hoover Institution. Still ahead, Block, formerly Square, is booming. The payments company sees strength in the consumer, not just on the spending front. We've got the latest next with the shares up almost 25%. Welcome back, everybody. Quick check on markets as this strong rally continues this afternoon. We're about 50 points off the highs, up 782 on the Dow, 83 on the S&P, and 140 on the NASDAQ. And check out shares of Block, formerly Square. They're surging almost 25% today after the company issued an upbeat outlook. Kate Rooney is here now with why they're so optimistic. Kate? Hey, Kelly, part of this was really low expectations. Block's report and outlook were a lot better than analysts had feared based on what rival PayPal said in its earnings a couple weeks ago. Shares are up, like you said, almost 25 percent after the company outlined stronger profit growth for the back half of 2022. Cash App was one of the big reasons for that optimism. And Block did see slower growth in January around Omicron, but CFO Amrita Ahuja highlighted strong inflows in the first weeks in couple weeks of February and expects more improvement in March. Wall Street had really feared the effect of government stimulus checks ending. And despite that, Cash App saw a pretty strong spending volume and more recurring paycheck deposits. The CFO calling that a key barometer of customers using the app for primary banking. It also now has 44 million users. Higher spending on the cash card also boosted shares of Marketa. That's the card issuer. For Block and one big relief on the earnings call, there was no mention of inflation hitting cash app customers or the end of stimulus. That's really not having much of an effect either. Really a stark difference, though, from PayPal. Inflation and stimulus checks ending were some of the key reasons for PayPal's lower guidance. PayPal stock, though, is higher today. It's up more than 4 percent right now. Coinbase, though, lower after its earnings last night. It did beat estimates, but talked about a slowdown in trading volume. For this current quarter, it cited a slump in, uh, slump in crypto prices, also seeing Robinhood trading lower as well today. Card companies, though, a bright spot in the payment uh, space here. you got Visa, Amex, MasterCard, all trading higher. Looks like uh, Amex is the big winner here, though. Back to you, Kelly. Yeah, and Kate, on the, your point about Block, are we to infer from that that Cash App is eating Venmo's lunch, or what else is going on here? It's interesting. It actually was a big surprise based on the demographic that you think of. I was just talking to an analyst about this. Venmo is really seen as sort of the higher net worth coastal millennial that uses Venmo. Cash App is actually used in a lot of cases based on data from Mizuho and others uh, in lower lower income demographics. And that was a big surprise for a lot of analysts who said they actually would have expected things like inflation and the end of stimulus checks to hit block even further. So I think the expectations in that sense were much lower for Cash App. They seem to have sort of a different uh, slice of the market at this point, definitely competing. And um, Cash App is growing, it seems like, and, and adding more. It actually is more profitable than, it se- than Venmo seems to be, at least for PayPal. Wow, so surprising. Uh, it, it, but also not, if you think about it. Kate, thank you very much, Kate Rooney. <laughs> You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.